So uh, on today's podcast, we interview a guy named Dr. Daniel Peters. We talk about feeling your feelings. We talk about paper tigers. We talk about sitting in discomfort. Uh, he's a wonderful man. What do you want to share? We also talk about anxiety and how it differs from fear. We talk about worry and how to talk to our kids about worry. We talk about how to talk to our kids about the challenges in the world and how we have to consider them, but not chronically think about them. Um, and so it was just a really good discussion about discernment mm -hmm. and about differentiating between this language and also figuring out how to manage it in ourselves. Um, and to talk to our kids about it. But I also wanted to share, Todd, that we have two podcasts that have come out in the last couple of weeks, um, and they're both on the Pop Culturing podcast platform. So Todd and I have another podcast called Pop Culturing, and we, in the last two weeks, have done a podcast with all three of our daughters talking about our top 10 favorite Taylor Swift songs. And all five of us have a different top 10. Yep. So it's a really great podcast about what Taylor Swift, you know, has meant to us as far as our parenting journey, what she has meant to our daughters and how she has impacted the world. And we also just did a podcast that came out to yesterday about Stranger Things Volume 2. You can also find Stranger Things Volume 1 on Pop Culturing. Um, and so we just wanted to remind you that we have that other that other show out there. There are some stranger things out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I had fun doing both those podcasts. I am, am loved uh, interviewing Dr. Dan. I think you guys all get something out of it. So hopefully you enjoy the podcast. Do, 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 do. Here we go. My name is Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 668. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. And I'm guessing our guest for this week, and we don't have a lot of guests, but when we come across somebody that we find is interesting, we invite them to be on. Today, we have Dr. Dan Peters. Dr. Dan, say hello to our audience. Hello, everyone. Um, Dr. Dan hosts a podcast called Parent Footprint and invited author, amazing woman, Kathy Kasani <laughs> Adams on his podcast a while back. And now it's our turn to interview him. So Kathy, is there anything? Well, it was uh, actually just a couple weeks ago and it was really fun because um, I knew this before because I think Dan was introduced to me by Debbie Reber. Is that right, right, Dan? Is that was That's that our right. mutual? That's I mean, our connection. We have a lot of overlap with people, but that, I think that was a person who said you got to contact this guy, and and we just, you know, I read all of his stuff before I went on and listened to his show. But we just have a very, very, very similar philosophy. Todd, obviously, you and I, you know, this includes you, and so it's just fun to talk to somebody who. It's not about that we just make each other feel good about things. It's just that it's like. You know, Dan's skill set is in anxiety and twice exceptional and gifted and all sorts. We'll talk about this and, and you know, um, neurodiversity. And so he brings this same understanding about compassion and connection 
um, relationship to his expertise. So it's just fun to have that conversation. So we're really glad to have you here, Dr. And, Dan. And I'm guessing, uh, yeah, it won't be an adversarial interview. No. I think we... we <laughs> have we ever had one? Uh, yeah, we try not to, even right. though there's a there's an egoic part of me that would love to have somebody on that's like, yeah, spank your kids. It's a great idea. Well, and then just go to battle on it. Dan, let's just ask that. On your podcast, have you ever... Uh, and you don't have to give names. This is not about like, you know, calling people out. But have you ever sure. had a guest where you've been like, oh, what you're saying doesn't jive so i have a faint memory of one person i can't tell you the person i can't tell you the topic but i remember continuing trying to steer it reframe you know like reframe it so like you're saying and not everyone would necessarily yeah so there was there was one but i can't I don't have a vivid memory of it. It was, it was, it was I was working hard. Totally. You were trying to pull the jewels out of it, but you were yes. also trying to say, now you're not saying this in every situation. <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. I could totally feel that. So Dr. Dan is a psychologist. He's an author. He's a parenting expert. Um, he's written some books, Make Your Warrior a Warrior. Make Your, your warrior, warrior a warrior. warrior. And then I think another book called From Warrior to Warrior the Warrior work, Workbook, and then you also co-authored something called Raising Creative Kids. So I want to pause there. And it's funny, I have a relationship with both of those words, warrior and warrior. I'm in a men's, men's organization, we always talk about warrior energy and also talk about lover energy. And then warrior, whenever I think of the term worry, I think of Eckhart Tolle, who told Oprah mm -hmm. one time that worry pretends to be necessary. And for somebody who spent so much time on these two words, I just want to hear from you, what's that all about? Well, even before this uh, pandemic and this, you know, incredible spike of worry um, and anxiety, anxiety, worry, and fear has been with us a long time. And particularly, I, I spent a lot of time working with kids and families and anxiety just kept popping up, kept popping up, kept popping up. Then I had my own kids and lo and behold, they experienced some of that too. And then realizing my own life and looking back when there wasn't anyone to tell me what these things were called and all these quiet nighttime fears. And I think Kathy and I were talking about mm -hmm. death and um, it all just came full circle. And I just became very, it became very relevant at personal and professional. And I was spending a lot of time helping people, whether it was in my own home or in my office, understanding anxiety, understanding worry, and trying to loosen the grip that that we call the worry monster has mm -hmm. on us so people can live fully and see themselves as separate from these feelings that are so limiting and um, mm -hmm. and uh, can be, um, you know, flatten you, mm -hmm. just could level, level you. Dan, uh, one of one of my questions for for you because of all you know your expertise is, I find personally, um, and with clients, and I, that I struggle to help them and me differentiate between fear and worry. Um, Can you throw anxiety into that as well, sweetie? I guess so. And it's funny because I tend mm -hmm. to come from a more spiritual perspective, and mm -hmm. then I also have to throw in their intuitive things where it's like. Am I afraid of something or am I having an intuitive hit? Am I, I mean, I'm throwing a lot of words on you now, but it's like they're internally, it can be very hard to differentiate between am I afraid or am I just anxious about something? And, and does it, how much does that matter? 
you know, right. is it really right. just about managing it? So what, what how do you, what yeah. kind of language do you use? Well, and I'll even add, and am I just excited, which oh, has yeah. the same physiological totally. often mm -hmm. uh, feeling. So I think in the big picture, and this is a really good question because this is the debate always. What, what do these different words mean? And I think it, it well, there is some med medical scientific language and meaning behind it. And then I think it's highly subjective. So what I'll say is the number one thing is to be able to recognize it and sit with it so you can have this inquiry process to ask these exact questions that you both are asking right now. Is this, is this fear, which we'll talk about in a second, is this um, signal, signal fear or signal anxiety, which means more like, hey, this is a, your, your intuitive body and sense saying, get out mm -hmm. or go away mm -hmm. or don't listen to that person. Then there's this anxiety, right? This clinical disorder of anxiety with a big A or a little A that has all of these physiological sensations that goes with it, including a panic attack. Hmm. And then we have worry, which I think so many of us relate to worry. And then the question becomes, when does worry topple into a, to a, to a thing that is really debilitating, um, ongoing, persistent, and continues to get in the way? Yeah. So I think I only kind of answered that question so far. All right. Yes. So um, what I hear you saying is that we'll call it fear. Fear is a, a human emotion, which is sometimes very valuable. And there's nothing wrong with experiencing fear. If we didn't experience fear, we wouldn't have evolved as human beings in the way we have over millions of years, blah, blah, blah. Anxiety. First of all, I want you to differentiate. You said small A and capital A or something like that. And I, I don't understand what that means. Like what's the difference between small anxiety and big anxiety? Can you help me out with that? Yeah, I would say that um, most of us these days live with uh, small A, little mm -hmm. anxiety. Like we have anxious feelings. We have anxious thoughts, which topple into worry category. Mm -hmm. Big A, we don't want to minimize a clinical um, debilitating anxiety. And I even hesitate to say anxiety disorder because I always wrestle with disorder um, mm. and what that means about us. But I, it's more about the labels signifying and validating that something is legitimate. It's not your fault. It's something we need to deal with. So the big A is actually it's a clinical Got it. situation. Got it. Okay. See, that's why I love Dan, because he loves words like I do. Like, because I, it's so funny, as I was watching you say that, I realized you weren't saying disorder. And I'm like, he doesn't like that word either. Um, yeah. and, and it's not, and, and the challenge is, is that, and I know you do too, I have clients or people I know or that really are fine with that word disorder because it gives them that sense of like, this is something I'm dealing with and and mm -hmm. I don't want there to be any misconception that this is a struggle for me and that this is something I need support with if it be uh, medicinally or whatever kind of therapeutic intervention. Um, but it is a, I love the way that you have a nuanced approach to it because there are things that, you know, like we have to differentiate between being able to have anxiety and sometimes significant anxiety when things are really happening in our lives or we're in the middle of a pandemic or whatever may be going on. And also having a, um, you know, but being able to manage it and go to bed at mm -hmm. night and then start again, you know, that's, exactly. that's kind of what I always feel like is the difference is, you know, sometimes you have days that are anxiety provoking or sometimes you have challenges, but you, you know how to access support. You feel like you can get through it versus some people who are like, this feels so chronic and there's no end to it. Mm -hmm.
Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Todd, I was going to also add when you were talking about fear um, as this is a, the biological drive, like we mm-hmm. need we need fear to keep us alive. And then we call so people are thinking, what's fear? What's anxiety? Think of fear as how to survive a saber tooth tiger. Mm-hmm. Like that's the fight and flight response that we all need to survive as an individual and as a species. And it can be intense. It's a flooding of physiological sensations, which is different often than a slower burn mm-hmm. of big or little anxiety mm-hmm. where it's not necessarily a panic attack. It's not necessarily fight and flight. And it doesn't necessarily serve a purpose like fear is supposed to serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to keep us alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I'm sorry, Todd, but I, I saw, I read something today that I thought was actually very even helpful to me about if your thoughts are chronically saying "what if," "what if," mm-hmm. then you know that's not something you necessarily need to do anything about. That's just a that's a that's a, a running tape. That's a self talk that can be anxiety provoking. There is you can actually because I always struggle with is this something I can put aside and and not necessarily repress or deny, but say, I don't really need to do anything about that. That's just some anxiety coming up. And I feel like when it has what if attached to it, you know that you need to soothe that aspect mm. of yourself. So in other words, sweetie, like your what if is kind of the slow burn that Correct, Dan, that Dan was, was just, just referring to, yeah. Versus, I'm trying to think of what's the real world version of the saber tooth tiger? Like when does fear help us? It might be a fear of, you know, if you're in a relationship that you shouldn't be in and you're afraid, like that might be a useful fear. Obviously the car going down the street and all of a sudden you Mm -hmm. realize that you're not recognizing where you are and you have to get out of the way really quick. That's a productive fear. But, and this is just kind of like a really maybe existential question. How often does, do we have a valuable version of fear? I would say like, and I'm just making something up, 98% it's all anxiety and worry. And maybe 2% of the time, it's a real fear that we need to pay attention to. And that's a very non-scientific You're making that way. up, yeah. I'm totally. Yeah, I, I, but I like that. <laughs> yeah, so yes, we're, we're, none of us are citing any journal right here, but I think that that's, that makes sense to me. And I think the challenge of our current life and raising our own children, our collective children, there is far more things on a far more regular basis that is going into that 2%. percent mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. So if I mean, I never used to think about going to a public situation, a public display of anything and thought there's a chance that I could get shot. Mm. Like, right. I mean, so these things that have been, I think, at times, irrational worries. Mm. It's and when does it topple over to, okay, this is legitimate. Mm -hmm. This is something we do need to think about. Um, and, And that that reminds me. Thinking versus worrying. Mm. Right. A lot of times. And I, I always say, so what do I need to worry about? All right, guys. So tell me what's going on here and let me know all the things I need to worry about. And I realize, gosh, it's it's so much a part of our psyche and our our um, our narrative to use the word worry instead of think, because mm. thinking is problem solving. And this is where we try to get people into their frontal lobes out of their limbic systems and amygdalas who are only reacting to that physiological response and the what ifs mm-hmm. and back taking it back to the what ifs the what ifs are thought there's some people that say the what ifs account for 98 plus percent of all of our worrisome thoughts start with what if mm-hmm. and if we are aware which we all try to be right mm-hmm. if we're aware 
and we see a what if thought, we know that the worry monster is creeping. Yeah. Messing with us. Yeah. So I'm going to add to that. You said thinking versus worrying, and I'll add another word versus feeling. And mm. feeling is something that I'd, I, I'm getting better at it as an adult man who was taught that the only feeling that I was able to express is anger. I'm getting better mm. at expressing sadness and fear and some of the other emotions. But I wonder, <clears throat> like for me, when I'm coaching guys or when I'm talking to people that want to hear what I have to say, I talk about naming the emotion, locating it in my body, expressing it in a healthy way and finding wisdom from it. My question is, I'm trying to think, like if somebody's super anxious, is it healthy to feel the anxiety in your body to express it and let it out? Or do we go up into our head saying, this isn't worth feeling? And I I don't know the answer to this question. It's just coming to me as we're talking. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about Mm -hmm. that. I do. And I think this is the wonderful part about being human and having choices and having different tools because depending on the person or the situation, both can be very uh, healthy. Both can be resilient. So on the one hand, a lot of people, we, we humans live to avoid distress, <laughs> right? So if we think about a fight and flight response to a non-threatening situation, so let's say the child who gets called on a class and runs out of the classroom or, you know, doesn't know what to say and runs off the, the playground, that is not a life and death situation. And that is a feeling that one is just bolting from. So mm-hmm. I think as we evolve and become more um, more skilled and more mature to sit in that emotion, to feel that emotion, which of course is much more Buddhist and mindful, to fully embrace it is is a tremendous skill and asset to be able to go to realize like an itch, I can sit here and it will go away even though it is unpleasant. Mm. Mm. On the other hand, to your point, having these feelings and no, having so this tightening of chest or this heartbeat or you start to sweat, you, all these things that your head starts to feel a little foggy, all these things that everyone knows what their own indicators are, their own, the, their own uh, you know, car indicators are when they start to get anxious. And to say, okay, what am I thinking? Because I know when I feel this way, I'm anxious. So what's my thought? This is now in the cognitive model, cognitive behavioral model. And then to say to myself, oh, I'm thinking, what if this happens? That's not helpful. I'm going to smack this aside and I'm going to focus right now on the present or replace that irrational future-based tripping thought with something which is more present-based and more realistic. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. I I feel I want to like bring a bunch of things together that we've talked about in the last 10 minutes is that... I was thinking about what you said, Dan, about kids today do have, or in adults, I guess all of us do. Mm-hmm. We do have to think when we go to, you know, a 4th of July, you know, we live not too far from Highland Park. So yeah, right. you know, that's a yeah. thing um, that we've been thinking about forever. I remember even a couple of years ago, cause I'm a yogi and I remember something happened in a yoga studio. There was some kind of shooting in a yoga studio. And I remember the next day when I went, I thought, geez, like this mm-hmm. was like my sacred place. And I even have to think about this here. So Why this is so important to remember is that I have some, I'll speak personally, some childhood baggage of when I was a kid and I would worry about certain things. Adults would say that's never going to happen. You know, it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And we're now, like you said, these things have happened. And I just wrote down your language of when, when we, when we're thinking about something, the what if, instead of saying that's not going to happen, it's that's not helpful. 
right mm-hmm. now. Right. Um, and how, like, I, I don't want to take us to, because I can tell Todd has another question too, but when we're talking to our kids, if it be, you know, you know, our young adults, our teenagers who are really having these experiences, how do we, how, is that the language we use? Like, you don't need to chronically worry about this. Yes, this is, this is something, but thinking about this all the time is not helpful to your body. Like, is that mm-hmm. how we have that conversation? Yeah, I, I really think it's, um, especially as our kids are older and, you know, in similar ages, yeah. there's, they're, they're out in life. They're getting yeah. more and more out in life. And I think the question is, or the, the, the message to them is to be aware of your surroundings be aware of your the scenarios, the situations. Who are you with? You know, uh, is it light? Is it dark? Mm-hmm. What part of the world are you in? And to make mindful, make make you know what do we say? Make good choices, right? Like try to make the best choice you can in the situation. And you know, bad things happen. I mean, with with two. I mean, I've had more and more of these conversations lately. With two of our three are. Uh, young women in our, of our kids. And, you know, there's conversations to have with our daughters that we are different conversations that we have with our son about the world and, and men and situations. And I don't like those situations. And I, and I, I admit, I said, these are my worst fears. And I'm just telling you as a parent, um, I need to, I need to talk to you about this because I need to know that I've given you the information mm. that's out there without giving you my fear. And um, and with one of our daughters recently, I was talking to this about before a trip that she was taking. And she said, Dad, that's my worst fear, too. Mm. And we were able to then have a conversation about we don't have to live in fear, but we have to be aware of the possibilities of what the world is like and what can happen, mm. but not to live in it. Mm. So a lot of different directions I can go in there. And I'm guessing, Dan, that you're a wonderful, loving father. And I'm guessing that you'll already be doing what I'm about to invite you to do. But where I get triggered sometimes is when parents of daughters tell me about all the conversations they have to have with their daughters, and then they forget about having the conversations with their sons. Mm -hmm. Oh, he does. way too much attention about protecting our daughters and not nearly enough attention about informing our sons what it means to be a mature masculine man in this world. So I just want to pause there and see if you have any comment on that. Um, I agree with you. Um, And just from uh, looking at it from a, a, in our family, my wife and I seem to have a pretty good tag team about what's a my conversation and what's a your conversation. Mm-hmm. And her background is as a nurse. So a lot of these conversations she's able to bring in with this biological medical, which also I think makes it less threatening, mm-hmm. depending on what the combination is to the kids. And so so yes, the short answer is yes. We have to, we, we equally, it's different. And I think dads of daughters have this more worry and fear. And it's like, ah, oh, our, our kids, will, our sons will be okay. But we do have to tell them the opposite side of mm-hmm. what we're talking about um, and, and things that can happen and things that can be misconstrued and realities of respect mm-hmm. and boundaries and asking permission and all of that. Yeah. Very important thing. Yeah. And I, you know, we are raising three girls and I think the conversations that we always have, because I'm just like you, you know, we have to talk about these things. And I think we have, we started when they were really young and when, and we're being very like, 
you know, generic here. We're like, we have to talk about these things. What do we have to talk about? We have to talk about sexuality. We have to talk about gender. We have to talk about, um, you know, violence. We have to talk about threats. We have to talk mm-hmm. about, um, you know, taking care of your own body. We have to talk about things that can happen and, you know, being in community, walking with other people. Like it's, it's interesting because some of these things, you know, the way that you were talking about it, I also heard this from my parents when I was in my 20s, you know, I mean, some of the things started to add up. Like I remember when people started to talk about, you know, make sure you have your drink with you at all times. So you yep. people don't put stuff in your drink. So it's like it's been added to, but it's been a similar conversation. I think the the little shift that you and Todd are talking about here is we used to say to girls, this is basically all on you. Mm-hmm. You know, like you mm-hmm. protect your drink, you protect your body, you say no, you don't go anywhere. And it, it, it fell all on girls and women where that subtle shift, you know, for everyone listening who's raising boys is this is also teaching boys and young men responsibility as far as expectations and, you know, not making this a girl problem. This is right. a this a lot of this is happening because of men's irresponsibility. So it's a, or lack of information, you know, like sometimes I, you know, I really like to, you know, broaden the picture that sometimes there's a lack of awareness or no conversations have been had. So, you know, I feel like that's the big shift in this space and time. Well, and I also need to share in there because it's true. Uh, women are the only, are not the only ones of uh, being victims of Correct. sexual violence. Correct. So it also true. happens to adult men, young men, uh, and obviously, um, the transgender community obviously is a huge target for sexual violence. Um, I want to go back for a second because when we started talking about fear and anxiety and wor- worry, two of the things that you said that I was struck by, one is you talked about a, a signal, like there's a signal that happens. So the, my first thing is, um, one of the things you said is everybody knows their indicators. And because I work with guys, there's a lot of times when even I'll say, somebody asks me what I'm feeling in my body and I'll be like, Nothing like mm-hmm. no, I have no clue. I know I have thoughts of fear, anxiety, anger, whatever. But if they say recognize the signals, I'm going to tell you there's times in my life as a 50 year old man, there's mm-hmm. n- there may be indicators, but I don't recognize them. So mm-hmm. I just want to see if you can uh, riff off of that a little bit. And I'm glad you mentioned that. So what I what I should say is hopefully we all learn mm. our indicators as we get older. I think that would be more appropriate your point. Um, you know, I think where we're all aligned is on this increased awareness throughout our lifespan and, and how to use that awareness to navigate life, to live life more fully, to suffer, uh, topic of your last show, to mm-hmm. suffer uh, less and use suffering for the path, the way out. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is this is about stopping and taking inventory. Mm-hmm. So when you are feeling at times maybe numb or I can't tell you what I'm feeling, but I know I'm starting to get mad mm-hmm. and I'm having these anxious thoughts, then I am always trying to help people just peel back more. Okay, so stop right there. What does your body feel like? And literally go through in a, in a, in a quick um, muscle exercise. Where are you feeling numb? Where are you feeling tense? Where do you feel pain? Where do you know, where do you feel cold? Where do you feel hot? Mm -hmm. And through a process and people going out and practicing, you know, in between in meetings, they can often start to identify some sort of pattern. And even if the pattern is I go numb Mm -hmm. for Mm because a lot of people with trauma backgrounds, that is the normal 
physiological response to fear is to go numb because that is an adaptive response to dealing with a traumatic situation. So I think everyone can increase awareness incrementally. It's just continuing to try to pay attention to it. And Mm -hmm. the key is, and I have my tools and tricks in my toolbox, but when you're asking somebody to recognize or locate what's going on inside their body or inside their mind, I just wonder, I I would love to give some of our listeners some of the tools that you advise your clients, the people that you connect with on how Mm -hmm. to cultivate this idea of self-awareness, whether it's in your body or, you know, just take Mm -hmm. that question in any direction that feels right. Okay. So the first thing that comes to me is when we are feeling discontent, anywhere from discontent to discomfort to distress, to ask ourselves, what am I thinking right now? Mm-hmm. Like if we just go with the cognitive model first, that's something that's just been very helpful in my life as I've gotten older is what am I thinking right now? When I wake up at three in the morning or actually 3.33 in the morning or totally. 2.22 in the morning, right? When those things happen, you're like, how does this happen every morning this time? Um, that's a whole nother conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I just ask myself, what am I thinking right now? And nine out of 10, I can pretty quickly determine what I'm worrying about related to my life, my work, or my family. Mm-hmm. And then I ask myself, do I need to think about this right now? Or is there something else that I can think differently about this situation right now? So the number one tool for me is, what am I thinking right now? Mm-hmm. The next tool is for us to learn more and more about, and this is actually where the part of the book came from. Um, and I never had a book. I would just give talks and people would say, well, can I get your book? I don't have a book. And then, so that was the pressure. And it was really teaching people of all ages about the biopsychosocial model of how our brain and our body responds and reacts to fear. Mm. So if you just have the awareness that our brain is always on guard, mm-hmm. like always searching for that saber tooth tiger in danger. And when we get a hit, a real one, or a, as um, some people say, a fake tiger, a, a paper tiger, a real tiger or a paper tiger, it will go off. And when it goes off, we have a very predictable process in our body where our adrenaline, it gets messages go to our adrenal glands to produce massive amounts of adrenaline to go to our arms and our legs to make a superhuman fighting and running machines just to survive. And when we do that, the blood leaves all of our major organs like our brain so we can't think, like our stomach so we have stomach aches, right? So we can be mobilized. Mm. Just having that piece of information when we start to feel a certain way and go, okay, my body is activated right now. What is going on? And the what is going on question, again, if, if it's not a car coming right at us where we just have to dive, is... Is this a situation I'm in that I need to get myself out of? Or is this an internal situation that has happened that I need to reframe, I need to breathe, and I just need to sit with? Mm. So that's the, the, the third tool that comes to me is to try to sit in the discomfort and give yourself time to activate your frontal lobe, your thinking brain, to decide, what do I need to do in this situation? Leave, breathe, talk to myself, meditate, Mm -hmm. go for a run, read a book, right? So it's like giving yourself this time that even though it feels like the sky is falling at times, it usually isn't. Mm. Yeah. You know what's something I've realized, Dan, is that 
I, and I think this is very human. Like, I don't think this is a Kathy thing at all. I think that we are so used to, because we're programmed that way, like you said, you know, that's the way our neurobiology is set up to survive. It's actually a wonderful thing, you know, when we look at it through a different lens, but we're so used to it. We're so programmed that way that I have this thing where I've recognized that my fear if it doesn't have a place to go, it'll find something. So it's <laughs> yeah. very literal. Like we, you know, Todd and I talk about sometimes, you know, having three girls, we as parents, we play what we call whack-a-mole, right? Where we're like, okay, this person needs a lot of our attention right now. And so we're very focused in the other two. We're like, they're fine. They're fine. They're fine. And then once we feel like this person's okay, we're like, no, wait a second. Are they fine? And we're like, and it's not like we're trying to bring up problems. It's just we're playing, paying closer attention to Maybe we need to like pay attention here, you know, or there's something real crisis that pops up. So my fear really loves to have a place to go. And and I'm using the word fear. I could, as we started this conversation, sometimes it's my anxiety or um, it it just depends, like, because it feels different. You know, I do have really good body signs. I know what I'm like, oh, I'm really afraid right now, you know. And and so it really I think there's some self, not just self-awareness, but some self-compassion for the fact that I think people really believe that there are times they can just be in full joy and gratitude and they're not going to feel anything else. And and while I have had those experiences and they exist, there are times when you're still kind of playing with, is there anything I should worry about? You know, like, shouldn't I be focused on something or else I'm missing the boat or dropping the ball? Do you, do you find that too? I so relate. <laughs> and in my intro to the book, I wrote about my own experiences of growing up not knowing that I had my own perfectionism and yeah. my own anxiety. And the exact example that relates to what you're saying is I remember being in seventh grade. I would lie in bed and I'd go through my lists of things to worry about. Totally. And occasionally I would get to the end and I'd be like, oh. <sighs> There's nothing to worry about. I, I got it all covered. And I'd sit there and I, within two minutes, okay, now I need to worry about this. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think it's our natural. It's a, it is a, not everyone experiences this, but I think it is a very common experience. Okay. Yeah, so I love that. one thing I'm going to pull away from this interview is I've never heard that term paper tiger, but I really like it a lot. And it, and it helped, like, I think that what, what I need to focus on, and if anybody else feels like focusing on it along with me is a discernment between mm. actual survival and the survival of your of our egos. And the way I dis- define ego, it's our need to outsource approval, control, and security from the outside. So I, I love, and, and I think discernment, you know, is breathing, it's maybe going up into our head and thinking about it, is, am I really at risk? Is, am, is my ability for my heart to keep beating at risk in this moment? Or am I just worried that my wife just told me off and that I'm not as much of a man as I thought I was because my wife just yelled at me or whatever. I don't yell at you, honey. Most, she doesn't, she doesn't. <laughs> I was like, don't, don't, don't put that out there in the universe. I do speak strongly yeah, we, and assertively, but I don't yell. We're, we're not yellers. It's just not how we <laughs> yeah. choose to do it. So I yeah. think the discernment is, is such a valuable thing if we can do that. And like I said, 98% of the time, it has nothing to do with our survival. Instead, it's how we're perceived by others or how we start blaming yeah. ourselves. So I just wonder if you yeah. have any thoughts about that. I do. First of all, I want to give credit to uh, where I learned the term from, Paper Tiger. Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg mm. is an amazing human uh, pediatrician, the resilience and teenager um, just guru. So uh, Dr. Ken, thank you for that terminology. 
discernment, Todd, I, that is a word that I love and use regularly in my own life, particularly in the last few years, as I've continued to learn and grow and do more work um, on this as a human being. And so I love that. I think, yes, our job is to, I think in life, it's, it's even beyond anxiety and fear. It, it's discerning what is what is what it what does my integrity say? Mm. What does um, what does my value system suggest I do? What is something that I should the shoulds right? What should I lean towards? What should I pull away from? And starting to cultivate in ourselves these questions where we don't just react as human beings, which is part of our makeup, is to react. How do we take a step back? sit in the, at times, the storm and discern, is this outside? Is this inside? What do I need to do to survive or optimize the situation? Don't you feel like that, you know, there, that is so where I feel like I've been for a long time with, you know, that practice and where I, I trust that practice because I have, I, I never like it. And that's something that we I always say to our listeners when we talk about things like pain and grief or discomfort that we can't even name. When we get into a cell, a too much of a self-helpy place where we're like, oh, I process it and it magically floats away. I always call bullshit on that. Like discomfort's discomfort. And, and I mm-hmm. feel like sometimes we feel like it should be easier than it is. And it just is what it is. And, and I've learned to trust that. I think where I have struggled um, especially with my girls, the age they are, is I am dis- I am uncomfortable with their discomfort. And <laughs> I have I, I'm very aware of that. And I talked to Todd about it. I have my own my own therapist. I'm trying, I'm doing my best to not have super codependent tendencies where I am mm-hmm. acting on that, but it's happening internally. So even if I am backing away and letting them sit in their storm, as you would say, I'm really internally churning. You know what I mean? That's Mm -hmm. like where a lot of things come up. So do you find that, you know, with the parents or kids you work with that we struggle to allow our kids to go through these things? Cause it's the only way they then, cause I trust myself with discomfort, right? but I'm not trusting them. This, I think this has been the biggest lesson I'll just say for my wife and I over in our parenting journey, this is, this is the biggest lesson. This is something that we talk about and work on all the time. And you know what you just, Kathy, made me think about when I, so I think about, so the Dalai Lama says we can be okay even when our life situation is not okay. Correct. And how I would train, and I just thought of these words as you were talking is this mantra that we can be okay even when our kids aren't okay. Yeah. I know, I know that it. That is so hard to it's do. So hard. It's so hard. And they're on their path. Yep. And part of when we think about all of our suffering, and most of it we didn't want, but hopefully a lot of it we ultimately learned from and it informed us and guides us. And our kids need that too. Mm-hmm. And we just have this innate, right? This innate, many of us have this innate drive to take away our kids suffering and not be able to tolerate their suffering and that does create a lot of codependency and actually mm-hmm. in extreme in the extreme is not good for our kids development and i don't think the extreme is good either way and i'm going to oversimplify this and probably not mm-hmm. state it with the clarity that it needs i'm on the other side of the pendulum not to say i don't struggle my kids are struggling but i have the 
this uncanny ability to compartmentalize a lot of stuff. There's some stuff mm-hmm. I couldn't compartmentalize and I was a wreck when our kids were struggling with something. But Kathy's on one side of the thing where they had a bad day at school and she experiences it kind of with them. And it's internal. Even if I'm not like, I'm not talking to them, meaning I know to back away, but right. I'm still carrying it. And I'm over here on my computer completely disregarding <laughs> their crappy day. Yeah. And I think the answer is, as it is in most, it's in the gray, right. it's somewhere in between. And I just wonder yeah. if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I do think, um, and this is also why I love the, I love partnerships. Not everyone is in a partnership yeah. and not everyone is in a, a healthy partnership. So I just want to say when partnerships work, you get all the colors and flavors of the rainbow and hopefully work together. Mm-hmm. So I, I find this is very common in, in um, couples. And then it's learning to the strength and the challenge of each of those approaches mm-hmm. at different times and who steps in and who pulls someone out at times. So I do think ideally we're right in the middle or not, not right in the middle. Let me say it this way. It's back to discernment mm-hmm. as you were talking about Todd. I think we need to discern because we're going to have, so those of us who are more sensitive and pulled to our kids' emotions, you don't even, you just feel it and you're Mm -hmm. reacting before you even know what you're doing. Those folks, if we're increasing awareness, we're discerning, okay, is this me? Is it them? Is how big is this? Do they need a conversation? Do they need a hug? Do they actually need me to back off and pretend I have no idea what's going on? Like it's really, again, discerning. And then on the other side of it is as someone who is better at compartmentalizing, and we know that both of these approaches have their strengths and have their challenges, is okay, um, something might be going on that I'm not really caring much about. <laughs> I need to discern, is this something I should spend a little more time thinking about? Well, and, and maybe it is and maybe it's not. And there's also an emotional labor component to it because I know I can check out because Kathy's on the other side of the pendulum worrying herself right. silly. And it's an unfair, uh, unequal scenario that happens a lot between Kathy and I. Well, and I think the discussions, and this is like a couples therapy thing, but the discussions that Todd and I have had about this is he doesn't need to think like me. Like you said, Dan, there's Mm -hmm. a reason that Todd and I are together. So I'm not saying, hey, you know, think like I do, because I know I'm highly sensitive to things and we don't need two of me here. But what I want him to recognize is two things. Number one, when he says things to me, like, just relax, it's not that big of a deal. I'm always like, you you get to say that because you know I'm on the front line of defense. And so you can mm-hmm. be like, chill out because right. I am always here and, and he knows I'm going to pay attention. And the other piece is for our couplehood. I want him to understand why sometimes I'm really tired at the end of the day, but you don't see it physically. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, sometimes Todd's like, I went here and I ran here and I had this meeting and I had this and I had this. And he's like, oh, what a day. And maybe I was in the same place all day. But there was some serious energy being utilized in conversation, in discussion, in decision making. Um, and again, he used the language, this is invisible labor or emotional labor, but that also is really exhausting and very daunting. And it allows him to go do what he's going to do because I got certain things covered. So you're the backstop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and I've been more clear with him about, we do need to share, like, you you know, we are having big conversations. There's an imbalance that needs to be There addressed. is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it is, I think that's important because Dan, you, I mean, I think we had this conversation when I was on your show, you identify as being pretty sensitive as well. Yes? yes. 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 So you, in your relationship with your partner, with your wife, how, how does this play out? Well, that's interesting. I was just thinking about that because we both 
would be considered highly sensitive people. Interesting. And um, so there are times that we both go down the rabbit hole together and that's not helpful. And what we've, what we've learned, <laughs> right? There's like, where's Todd? Where is Let's Todd? Let's call Todd. Right? Yeah. He's on his computer. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. My now computer, I know where you are. Not worry I'll about just, it. I'll just hit you up. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and what we've worked on over the years is really partnering. And I think at times, we, when we're doing our best, someone is running point Mm -hmm. on that intuition and that sensitivity. And the other person is the reminder person, or, you know, like, again, I say, it's almost like pulling, pulling someone back, Mm -hmm. um, a sense. And Hey, remember, we just need to hold the space right now. I know this is going on. This is really hard. We just have to hold the space. There's really nothing we can do but just be here be, and be here for each other. And mm-hmm. and as I kind of process through this, like I'm trying to think of things that I worry more about than Kathy and I could probably put them on one hand. And one of them is about money. money. Yeah, money. money. It's totally <laughs> about money. And then the other is it, whenever they're by a big body of water, whether it's the ocean or a lake, like I've had some scary things that happened mm-hmm. to me younger and mm-hmm. not that Kathy's not also concerned, but I'm like, super uber mm-hmm. hyper aware hyper vigilant of, yes, of an undertow yeah and um but like i can only think of a few things that i am over, not overly worried about but like i we kathy and i changed seats a bit Height, in that. heightened worry yes right? you have heightened yeah mm-hmm. um so i don't even right. know if there's a question in there but well no but i i would what that makes me think about is again, our pasts and whether we talk with trauma with a big T or little T, here's an example. You had life experiences which were scary in bodies of water, which inform your physiology before you even have time to think, Mm -hmm. which then informs your behavior, which might be completely appropriate for the situation or might have your kids thinking, dude, relax. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you freaking out? And I think this is really about us all having empathy for... The other. people yeah. and I, and the other, and I think about, um, Bruce Perry and, uh, Oprah's recent book about, you know, instead of like, what's wrong with you, the title is what, what happened, happened to you. you. Mm. And when we look out in the world and people are doing all sorts of different people, human things, we don't need to accept everyone's behavior because it's some of the behavior cannot be accepted, but it all comes from somewhere. And I just think we all have to figure out that empathy and discernment when we're deciding what to engage with, how to engage, and how to just back away. Yeah. Yeah. The term I use is I'm not a fan of former President Trump. Let's just be very clear. <laughs> and but I also see him as a wounded person. Like something right. effed right. up, in my judgment, happened yep. to that man right. to make him uh, choose this style of leadership. I don't even know if it is leadership, but anyways, everybody, right. anybody who does horrific things. I, I think that the three of us probably agree. People by nature are good human beings mm-hmm. until somebody mm-hmm. Fs them up. So, yeah, right. And Mary Trump, you know, wrote a whole book about the psychological background that created this behavior, this mm-hmm. person's behavior. So, to your point, this is where we have to pull back the curtain. And I, and I talk about that a lot, just with whether it's the curtain on the worry monster or the curtain on what's going on with someone. And, and I'm using your word over and over, Todd, because I think to me, I'm going to think about from the show is just such a highlight of discernment. If we can become discerning human beings in situations rather than reacting mm-hmm. to what our impulse is, mm-hmm. 
things would go a lot better for us individually, in our families, and as communities. Mm. And, you know, I think I love this conversation because it gets so layered because there's a lot of people who, you know, and again, we get into sometimes partnership with somebody who represents a figure in our life, like an authoritarian figure that maybe was awful to us and was it was painful, but it becomes what we what feels normal in our body, what's typical, what we grew up with. And so we perpetuate that cycle. So a lot of times you can understand. And and again, I'll just use Trump because it's easy. Some people look to him as an authoritarian figure and it feels similar to how they perceive leadership or power. And probably because, makes them feel safe. Correct, because they grew right. up in a family that said, this is what we're going to do. I'm the only one who can do it. Um, other people suck. I'm the only one. And people are like, yeah, yeah, I grew up with that. And that made right. me feel safe. So mm-hmm. this becomes really layered. Like I, you know, I remember when Todd and I first started doing the show and, you know, there were a lot of people who, and, you know, Dan, because we talk about similar things, you probably have similar things with clients where our style or what we're talking about, people perceive it as weak and they perceive it as some kind of giving in or permissiveness because they're mm-hmm. like, no, no, no. Right. If you are a parent, it looks this way and you right. have to be afraid. And, and do you still find that? Or are you finding that to be less in the last couple of years? It's mixed. I, I think as a rule in the um, in the as a rule, it's 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 become more watered down. Yeah, that uh, that authoritarian approach, I think, is a little less and less. I will say, depending on like a, like you're saying, like a person's experience of growing up, um, religious affiliation. Yeah cultural background you see different trends mm-hmm. of of a stronger iron fist mentality versus a more um um i was going to say what the negative what people say is permissive but it's not permissive it's it's either nurturing or it's either child-centered or it's mm-hmm. mindful of the space you know whatever or zen mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah zen parenting hey yeah. how about that yeah um so yeah so i would say that i see less of it but i believe it's very firmly a part of our culture. And I still think when people, many parents are pushed to the brink, the ones who are still working hard not to be that still can easily fall back on. I'm in charge. I can, I'm in control. I need to control and I'm in control. And it's hard to get that out of our wiring when we've experienced that growing up and generations of that in many families. Mm. Yeah. And we still societally this, you know, it gets really strange because we still societally like we cheer for it. You know, like when we a kid is acting out and a parent's like, you're not going to do that. And here's what we're going to do. And we're like, yeah, you know, like we we really it's like even if we talk a different game, there's things in movies or TV shows where we're like, yeah, they deserve it. We still have this system of good and bad and justice and, and and all these things are good. Like this is where it gets really nuanced because obviously I believe in justice, but sometimes we just want it immediately and we want it like to look a certain way and we want this person to go down because we think there's a right way and a wrong way. Yes. Yeah, so going full circle. Yeah. This is how we as humans reduce our anxiety by keeping a perception yes. of control. So as long as the, the world makes sense to us when People who are out of line of any age get punished. Yes. And they get what they deserve, then hey, it's all good. Mm-hmm. The, the world is in order, and I can be less anxious about how uncertain everything is. Mm. 
Uh, um, exactly okay. right. I'm going to go back 10 minutes just because I want to ask this question I didn't get a chance to. We've talked a lot about sitting in discomfort. And for me, what that means is feeling the feelings. And it's something that I've been doing my best to focus on. And what, you know, the thing about sitting in discomfort is this is uncomfortable. So we want to <laughs> get the hell out of there as soon as we can. And there's times when I cultivate a practice of sitting in discomfort. And there's a lot of different ways people avoid discomfort, you know, booze, sex, shopping, work. And there's times when I've been so in my head that I'm feeling really stressed and I'm having a crappy day for whatever reason. I'm just feeling down. And I'm like, I'm going to go for a run. And then I like pause. I'm like, am I, am I bypassing feelings? Like what possibly bad can happen for me going for a run. And I, I do have the belief that there's times when I would use something as productive as being healthy and running outside and breathing in fresh air and nature and connecting as it, as a bypass. And I just wonder if that's you, that's a really good question. What do you think? That's a, I, I'm thinking yes. And yeah. yes, both. I, I, that's a really good question. So I think of if we all can sit for a little bit in our discomfort, I think we're strengthening our muscles. Mm -hmm. We're strengthening our, our human distress muscles, our human being muscles of there's nothing that's going to knock me over. You know, I can, I can handle this. Cause when I think of resiliency and what we want to foster in our kids and ourselves is that you can handle anything that comes your way. It can be objectively really crappy, but you can handle it. Mm -hmm. So, I do like the idea of sitting in discomfort instead of just distracting ourselves. Now, when we get to distraction, there is a very big difference between going and having six shots mm -hmm. of booze mm -hmm. versus going for a run or a hike or a walk. Right. Mm -hmm. And I could say personally, my probably my number one mental physical health activity is running. Mm -hmm. And so if when I'm feeling bad, that to me is a go-to of, okay, I just got to work this out in my body. I got to work this out in my mind. And it doesn't just like, it's not like you take your first step and all of a sudden, oh, yeah. you know, so I do think there's a process. So I think it's a great question. And um, I can end up on both sides of that one. Because I got friends who run marathons all the time and they're really crappy at feeling their feelings. I mean, they mm -hmm. have the appearance of running and they're strong and they're healthy and all that. But, you know, I, I, I would take a leap and say that you prioritize emotional intelligence more than... IQ more than physical intelligence and things like that. So I, yeah. I think it's yeah. tricky. Well, and that's also the, you just gave a great example of everyone's so different, yeah. right? There's some people that run marathons and ultra marathons and they're in a meditative state. Mm -hmm. And there are other people that are just, you know, they're, they're living in the, 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 well, these people can tolerate pain, right? Mm -hmm. So they're living in that kind of pain, but they might not have emotional intelligence. And mm -hmm. that's why I think we humans are so fascinating, yeah. so multifaceted. Yeah. I know. And it's funny because Tad, he go he moves, which is his, like you said, use the language of I need to, you know, get my body going or I need to work through this and I slow down. And my my big way of feeling, if it be a meditation that's formal that I do in the morning that I really love, or just I have to like stop and and it always the the answer that always comes and it, it's not a simplistic answer, but is, you know, you sit and you feel all that discomfort and you're like majority of it is what if stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the piece of even if something is going to happen tomorrow or you might get a test result or I'm not going to be sure how my mom's doing or my daughter's for that matter. But you can't do anything about tomorrow like you can right. own everything always comes back to this second 
what are you doing right now and and what can you do and go for a walk and pull some weeds? I really love the summer in Chicago because I have so many ways to be mindful Mm-hmm. in nature and outside that are re- feel really healthy, maybe similar to your runs, mm-hmm. you guys, right. you know, like where I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm not distracting myself from this, but I am doing something that is filling me mm-hmm. up. And my, you know, I do this, I think about this stuff all the time mm-hmm. and I work in it all the time. And still on a regular basis, my wife will say to me, we're not doing the what ifs. Yeah. We are not doing the what ifs. Can we just let things unfold? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, mm-hmm. but it's just so much more helpful for me when I can think of all of the scenarios of what could happen and then prepare for them. That's the myth, mm-hmm. like that that actually makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. It, what makes you feel better is put it, put the future in the future and live as fully as you can in the present. Totally. I mean, literally, if my therapist was here, she would say, like, Kathy's thing is she wants to not drop a ball. She wants to recognize everything before it happens. And she wants to keep things from happening. Like, there you and go. that is, and that a lot of that is childhood. A lot of that is mm-hmm. there was a, un, you know, it, it, this wasn't true, but I felt like I was maintaining everybody's emotions and making sure everybody was okay. And, mm-hmm. and I had to even question that story. You really weren't, Kathy. You just thought internally you were. You know, they right. were actually living their own lives, watching their own movie. Um, but so anyway, it just is a lot of realizing this over and over again and that it is a practice. Yeah, it's a constant practice. Yes. Yes. Constant strengthening of the muscle. Yes. So, Todd, did you have any last questions before Dan gets to life? I feel like if I ask him another question, we're going to keep going for 20 I know. more minutes. See, this is so fun. You have to- I'm going to ask anyways. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, I, I call them shift moves. When we're in this place of reactivity, how do we respond instead of react? And one of the shift moves is breathing, like one mm-hmm. conscious breath. But I'm uh, sorry, I'm still 10 minutes behind in this conversation. <laughs> Todd's but like, I'm working things through. I yeah, feel yeah. like even breathing can be a bypass. Oh, geez. Right? So I'm totally in my head saying, Todd, just... So anyways, my point is, if I'm in a place where I can express, if I can feel my feelings in my body and express them in a healthy way, I've actually been invited by a friend of mine to stop breathing and instead just let it come out. Mm. He's he. Mm. We were in the... We were sharing something pretty deep and I started trembling and started crying a bit. And then I breathed and I gathered myself and I was much more in control. And the invitation for him was, dude, just from over here, it seems like you're using breathing to push it down. Wow. So Wow, that is that is deep. Mm-hmm. Okay, what I'd say about that, that, I think that's a brilliant observation. So I don't think we can get through anything without breathing. Mm-hmm. Anything, I mean, we, you know, we do it all the time, and we don't even we're not even aware of it. So I do think when we back to however many minutes go on the toolbox, mm-hmm. like breathing is deep. Breathing is foundational. Foundational to yeah. the toolbox. And what you were invited to do in that situation to me is, you know, using our psychobabble language is more like a cathartic release. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we know that when there is trauma, big T or little T, the goal is to release it mm-hmm. somehow. And so I think as a rule, breathing through is foundational, as you said. However, if we are in situations that are safe, if we are in situations with guides of any sort or very close friends or spouses, 
and there is an opportunity to just let go in a safe way that can be very mm. healing mm. like healing to the point that triggers can go away mm-hmm. mm. yeah yeah and then as you release you know which you have been able to do you then to get back to a place of groundedness, that's when you then breathe. Yeah. You know, like, yes. so it's not, yeah. I wanted to read you guys a quote because I feel like it keeps coming into my head. And I, I feel like this is one of the only quotes that I feel like encapsulates a lot of truths that we've been telling today because they're all so nuanced and just, you know, yes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a roomy quote that I actually have in my room upstairs, but I don't have it memorized. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. I just love the truth about that. First of all, that's like the first sentence. But thank you, Rumi, for like, you know, Mm -hmm. don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down the dulcimer, which I have since learned is like a little guitar. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are a hundred ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Like three or four sentences with all of it. You're scared, yeah. you're anxious, you're fearful. Just own it, right? And every day, mm-hmm. 2.22 in the morning, <laughs> you're this way. Yeah. And that is the truth. So mm-hmm. let's let's own that, but also get the guitar down and and have gratitude and kiss the ground. But it's not one or the other. That's why I love that quote. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Isn't that a good one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just wanted to share that. Um, Dr. Dan, um, before I invite you to share who you are and how our listeners can consume more of your content, is there anything, any last thoughts, any questions, anything that you didn't get a chance to say that you wanted to say? <clears throat> I think the, the one, the one thing that I was just thinking to bring all this humanness together was the whole thing about gratitude, which I know has become cliche, but the reason I'm what you, Kathy, that quote made me think about is my wife and I often joke when we wake up in the morning, you know, does it start with the F word or does it start <laughs> with a smile or does it start with just a neutral stance? And um, whether it's in the middle of the night or in the morning, I've really try to embrace even when I'm worrying, just the gratitude for having a human experience, for mm. being alive, knowing that in this body, in this life, it's temporary and we don't know, you know, how much of it we have and trying to always come back to even in the suffering, like this is an opportunity to be human and to experience and every moment changes. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess to build on that, if we are breathing, we have a really good reason to be grateful. Like yeah. the ability to inhale and exhale is miraculous. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I, I feel like sometimes gratitude gets not weaponized, but just overused. Like, oh, just yeah. be grateful yeah. out of your problem without and don't and skip over everything else. But it's hard to go wrong with gratitude. Yeah, every word once we start to utilize it becomes mainstream, and then people take it too literally, right. and it loses its nuance. But I, you know, I 100% agree. And one of my teachers a long time ago, she would always call it the earth walk Mm -hmm. as we do our earth walk, which not everybody, it doesn't work for everybody. But the reason I like it is it's what you just said, the human experience. We're only here for a short time. We're walking the earth. And so even in like the hard times, you're still walking the earth. It's still part of the whole scene, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and as you and I talked on your show, Dan, about death, that's the thing that death 
teaches mm-hmm. us. And mm-hmm. if it be our own mortality or when we lose our parents or, you know, people we love, um, we recognize that this earth walk is, you know, it has a, it has a shelf life. Like we're, we're only here yes. for a certain amount of time. Dr. Dan, how would somebody find your book, find your podcast, all that good stuff? So uh, website, drdanpeters.com. The podcast uh, is on that. You can get there and everywhere that podcasts are um, are sold. They're not necessarily <laughs> available. Sold, you know. anyway, anyway, they're available. Yeah. Right. Um, you could follow us um, at Parent Footprint on um, Instagram, uh, at Parent Footprint Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook, and then Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. And... Uh, yeah, I think those are the main places to uh, find me. Oh, also, so I direct a center in California called Summit Center, and that's where we provide services, uh, counseling, uh, neuropsychological assessment, and consultation. And so we have lots of resources on that website, which is www.summitcenter.us. Dan Peters, thank you so much for joining us. We will catch everybody else uh, next Tuesday on the next episode of Zen Parenting Radio. Thank you, Dr. Dan. You're the best. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are always grateful for your support. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen, pre-ordering Kathy's Zen Parenting book, or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we will talk to you again next week.